Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I'm thrilled to see so many of you here in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, I want to make sure that you know that On View Now, uh, actually in its last weeks, um, is the great exhibition, Superheroes in Gotham, uh, a wonderful story of the evolution of the superhero right here in New York City. Um, we also have On View, and we'll have On View through April, Silicon City Computer History Made in New York. Another great show that uh, argues that technology, high-tech technology, really is made in New York. Uh, if you're not already a member of the New York Historical Society, please consider joining. Uh, we have plenty of materials for you outside the auditorium to pick up on your way out this evening. Tonight's program, America's Four Bills of Rights, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his generous support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. I'd also like to thank and recognize Eric Wallach, one of our trustees in the audience this evening, and to thank him for all he and his fellow trustees do on behalf of this great institution. Thank you so very much, Eric. Also, of course, I'd like to thank my great colleague, Dale Gregory, our Vice Pre President for Public Programs, um, for whom all of this talented programming is, uh, is a tribute. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. There will be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of our speakers' books will be available for sale in our museum store. We are thrilled to welcome Akhil Reed Amar back to the New York Historical Society. He's the Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. Before joining Yale Law School, Professor Amar clerked on the First Circuit for Judge Stephen Breyer. He is also a recipient of the Devane Medal, Yale's highest award for teaching excellence. And he is the author of several books, including The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction, America's Constitution, which won the Silver Gavel Award from the American Bar Association, and his latest, The Law of the Land, a great tour, grand tour of the Constitutional Republic. We're also delighted to welcome back Randall Kennedy, the Michael R. Klein Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. Professor Kennedy is a former clerk to Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall and to Judge J. Skelly Wright of the United States Court of Appeals. He's the author of six books, including Race, Crime, and the Law, which received the Robert F. Kennedy Book Award, and his most recent, For Discrimination, Race, Affirmative Action, and the Law. Professor Kennedy is a member of the American Law Institute, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Philosophical Association. He's also a charter trustee of Princeton University and a member of the bars of the Supreme Court of the United States and the District of Columbia. And now, just before I invite our speakers to this stage, please um, allow me to ask you to please make sure that anything that makes noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Thanks so much. Thanks again. Welcome, thanks for coming. Um, uh, I'm going to start us off, and um, well, it's obvious, right? 
uh, this tells the story of uh, actually this, this graphic of actually all four bills of rights actually that we're going to talk about uh, today. The, the Founders Bill of Rights, the Reconstruction Generation, Lincoln's Generation's Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights that we have today, which may or may not be the one that we think we have today, uh, and um, the Bill of Rights uh, of the future, uh, maybe the Bill of Rights that we deserve. Um, so um, uh, just to get us started, and then Randy will, will uh, uh, jump in. Um, and, um, and not only are all four bills of rights actually here, and I'm including the creative white space, but if we look very carefully, we might even see the, the benign ghost of, of uh, Antonin Scalia, a New Yorker, um, uh, 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 smiling uh, on uh, uh, our proceedings. Um, he's going to perhaps come up in the Q&A and maybe even before. Okay, so this is the most famous political painting in America in the, uh, uh, um, uh, in, uh, in, in the early Republic. It's John Trumbull's Battle of Bunker Hill. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about this one. And this is actually um, uh, uh, from Harper's Weekly in the 1860s. It's called the Freedmen's Bureau. Um, but before I do that, we're going to just play a very, very quick game, free association, um, Bill of Rights. You came to, to hear about the Bill of Rights and to ask questions about the Bill of Rights. Just shout out um, the, the famous Bill of Rights cases in American history, whether you agree with them or not, that pop into your head. When I say Bill of Rights, you know, um, um, what do you think about free association? What are the cases? Map versus Ohio. Griswold versus Connecticut. Roe. Miranda, New York Times versus Sullivan, Brandenburg, Brown versus Board of Education, Obergefell, Lawrence versus Texas. Not one of those is a Bill of Rights case. So well done. That's just the list that I was hoping you would give. Let's go back to the Bill of Rights. Bill of Rights is the first 10 amendments. Starts with the First Amendment. How does the First Amendment begin? Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. Um, and our friends of the Tea Party would just say, Congress shall make no law, period. Congress shall make no <laughs> exclamation point. And Congress is doing a really good job at vindicating that um, uh, Tea Party um, idea. But it starts with a limit on Congress and only Congress. It ends with the 10th Amendment. In between, it celebrates local militias. We're going to talk about them in just a second. That would be our local militia right here, our, our friendly neighborhood local militia. Um, and, um, and here's the, the, there's our militia. Um, under Liberty Tree's flag, um, and local juries. The original Bill of Rights, the Founders' Bill of Rights, limits the federal government and only the federal government. But the Bill of Rights, and that's um, uh, embodied in the very famous 1833 case decided by John Marshall, um, unanimously, Barron versus Baltimore. So speech, press, petition, assembly, free exercise, right against unreasonable search and seizure, confrontation, compulsory process, double jeopardy. None of these apply against states and localities originally, at least as a matter of the Bill of Rights, only against the federal government. And that's not the Bill of Rights that we have today. Um, so our Bill of Rights is going to have to go beyond the founding. Why is the founding vision so limited? Because your constitution in large part is the product of our history um, as a country. 
which is the history of our war. So let's start with the Revolutionary War. This is the original vision of the Second Amendment. It's military. It's the Battle of Bunkers Hill. It's localist. The heroes, you see, are the local militias. Imperial center, the flag of the Union Jack, bad guys. Jackbooted thugs, central government, bad. Local, good. Military, not civilian. It's political um, and it's communitarian. And blacks are not part of the story unless we look really, really carefully. That's, he's a black person, just at the corner of our story. That's local militias. That's your original Second Amendment. When guns are outlawed, only the king's men will have guns, and they're the bad guys in the story. Now, flash forward to this picture. This is after the Civil War. This is the second founding, the new birth of freedom. Do you see how this picture, the Freedmen's Bureau from 1866, this is a pun on this one. Flag of the central government here, flag of the central government here. But now these are the good guys. This is Ulysses S. Grant, the Union Army. Good guys. Black, one black person, now lots of black people in the picture. These militiamen under Liberty Tree's flag, they've become Klansmen. Not so good. They took up arms, these localists, hyper-localists, against the central government. So this is a different vision of arms. It's nationalist rather than localist. It's individual, the individualist, the, the uniforms have come off. It's not communitarian, it's civilian and not political. When guns are outlawed, only Klansmen will have guns. And you need to have a gun in your home for self-protection under this new Reconstruction vision because you can't count on the local cops to protect you. So these black guys over here, they need to have pitchforks and bayonets and, and some guns, some of them fought in the Union Army perhaps, but now they've, they've come home and the, the uniforms have been shed. If they don't have guns in their homes for self-protection, well, what's going to happen when the Klan comes calling? That's a different vision of arms bearing, and America is the product of both. And I'm going to turn the, uh, it over to, to, to Randy in one second, but since I promised I'd bring Justice Scalia into the conversation, because I suspect some of you are thinking about him, he writes a very famous decision about arms bearing in America. It's called Heller. It's a big Second Amendment case, and he celebrates an individual right um, to have a gun in the home for self-protection. I'm with him on that, but the story that he tells is the wrong one. He tells a founding story, um, which is all about militias and low, and I think he's right because of the Reconstruction, and he, Nino Scalia, didn't think enough about the Reconstruction. And that's a real problem if we Americans don't remember the Reconstruction along with the founding, and I think, I suspect Randy's gonna agree that that's a real problem if we don't think about the Reconstruction and we only think about the founding, but we'll see what he has to say. Randy. Well, thank you. Um, starting where you left off, I'm put in mind of my old boss, the great Mr. Civil Rights Thurgood Marshall. May 6, 1987, Thurgood Marshall is, gives a speech about the bicentennial, and he says, 1787, well, 1987. That's right. And he says, Basically, in this season where everybody is celebrating the founders, um, you know, I'm, he, his basic position was he's willing to celebrate a bit, but he urged people not to forget Reconstruction. Um, and that 
the 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 liberties, so many so many of the things that we celebrate, so many of the things that we enjoy, so many of the things that we almost instinctively look to for in terms of protection, in terms of governmental support of our individuality stems not from the original Bill of Rights, because like you said, the original Bill of Rights was really a charter of limitation on the federal government. What we really look to day in and day out, even if we're really not self-conscious about it, is the Bill of Rights that is made applicable to the states, but that only happened in the aftermath of the Civil War and Reconstruction. I'd like to say a couple of things about the original uh, Bill of Rights, the original constitutional regime. One thing about the original constitutional regime that I think people don't, don't think about enough is that the original constitutional regime the Constitution between 1787 and 1869 was a formally colorblind regime. Again, you mentioned Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia, one of his calling cards, one of the things about which he was most fervent was his desire, you know, colorblind Constitution. We've had a colorblind Constitution. Constitution of 1787, the Bill of Rights, Nothing, not one word about race. Seems to me we ought to remember that. There's a lesson in that. It was colorblind. Of course, it sheltered an atrocious regime of racial slavery. In fact, it did more than provide shelter for this atrocious regime of racial slavery to the extent that the original... Bill of Rights was put to use in the struggle over slavery, it was the slaveholders who were the most effective, who, who used the Bill of Rights, the Fifth Amendment. They said, listen, the Fifth Amendment, you know, due process. We have a right to our human property. And, for instance, the Missouri Compromise, the federal government telling that slave owners they, they can't bring their slaves with them to federal territory. That's an encroachment on their rights. Well, we ought to remember that. That's not all there is to say. There was a case that said that. If, well, if, if, a if, fairly if. famous case, Dred Scott. <laughs> fairly famous case. But we ought to remember, this is, you know, I mean, the, the history of the Bill of Rights, it's a large history, it's a capacious history, it has various elements to it, but this is one element that ought not be forgotten. Dred Scott is the most famous, if preposterous, Lincoln calls it an astonisher in legal history. I'm, I'm wearing my Lincoln tie, I hope you notice. Um, uh, but it's the one time that the Bill of Rights is actually used in the United States Supreme Court to invalidate an act of, of, the, of the federal government. Congress makes it a crime to criticize Congress and the Sedition Act of 1798, Alien Sedition Act. Courts have no problem with that. You know, all sorts of other things Congress does, courts uphold. The one thing that they strike down in 1857, free soil laws. They say, well, that's not consistent laws that make it uh, improper to take one's slave in, onto free soil, laws that basically prohibit slavery in the territories. 
That's what Dred Scott yeah. in 1857 says violates the Bill of Rights. Yeah. Remember that. But then there's this second constitution, so, which Thurgood Marshall wanted us to remember. And why don't you say a little bit more about well, that? Well, again, you know, I guess in coming here and in thinking about not only the Bill of Rights, but our constitutional regime in general, my view is that we tend to be, we, we tend to venerate these documents too much. We tend to take, we tend to, you know, uh, view the Constitution almost in religious terms. All of the important provisions in the Constitution are the upshot of political struggle. They came about through compromise. Um, things that we now applaud, applaud, applaud. If we take a look at how they were born, if we take a look at the various things that people were talking about when they were actually promulgated, we get a different picture. So, for instance, we're talking about Reconstruction. Let's start. We, you know, what do we mean by, re what are the Reconstruction Amendments? The Reconstruction Amendments are, of course, the 13th Amendment. 1865, the abolition of slavery. Let's, start, let's just start there with abolition of slavery. 1865. Six, over 600,000 Americans killed in the Civil War. Incredibly bloody conflict. Did the 13th Amendment just sail through Congress? Did it easily become part of the organic law of the United States? No. In fact, when the 13th Amendment was first put before Congress, Congress rejected it. Abraham Lincoln had to do all sorts of things. He had to twist all sorts of arms to get it through. The, the movie, the Spielberg movie. The Spielberg movie, and in fact, our, you know, our colleague uh, Judge Noonan said that if, if Abraham Lincoln were alive today, he'd be prosecuted for, you know, I mean, some bribery. of the, For bribery, basically. Now, not only that, not only was it a struggle to get through, but... They would have called it back then sweet-talking. Uh, yeah. yeah, okay. Euphemism prevails. Yeah. The 13th Amendment, we, we, we live under the 13th Amendment. But the, the 13th Amendment that we live under is a very stunted part of the constitutional regime. You've written about it. Well, I mean, you've written about everything in the Constitution, but <laughs> including the 13th Amendment. Thanks for the plug. And, and, well, it's just true. And one of the things that you've argued and that others in legal academia have argued is that the 13th Amendment ought to have a stronger presence than it does. The 13th Amendment is, is stunted. All the 13th Amendment has been interpreted to cover is actual slavery. Nothing more. Uh, it's one part of the Constitution that actually could be broadened. We could, if we had judges that were willing to, breathe more life into the 13th Amendment. Positive freedom and not just a negative charter of liberty. What does it mean not to be a slave? 
what does it mean to be affirmatively free? Might government have certain obligations to, in order to actually create real conditions for human flourishing and freedom? That, now we're starting to get into what the, the Bill of Rights of the future might look like, but that's the sort of thing that actually Reconstruction um, Republicans did talk about. Not just what, what was bad about slavery, but what would real freedom be? Franklin Roosevelt's gonna talk about that. But, but since you mentioned political contestation, just by way of reminder, and you mentioned the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment is a very partisan thing. Um, in the 13th, in 1864, the Republicans say, we're gonna give you a constitutional amendment to end slavery, and the Democrats say the Constitution as it was. So two very sharply competing visions, and the amendment doesn't go through until after Lincoln wins re-election. There's sort of a referendum, as it were, on this. They wait till the next presidential election. Let's have a referendum on, on the future. And in that referendum, Lincoln's side won, and only then was able to twist arms in the lame duck to get the 13th Amendment through. But on the 14th Amendment, every single congressional Democrat voted against the 14th Amendment. Every single one. And every single congressional Republican voted for it, with only one exception. His name was Joe Lieberman. No, no. Um, but but, 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 it was, but there really was only one exception. Only one exception. A totally partisan vote. Every bit as partisan as, let's say, Obamacare. You know, every Democrat voted for it. Every Republican voted against it. So, so this was a, a very contested um, thing. Um, well, I mean, Congress had to pass the Reconstruction Act to get the 14th Amendment. If, you know, the, the Congress passed a law which basically said to the states that it seceded, in order to get back into Congress, you've got to ratify the 14th Amendment. That's right. So that, that's why in the 1960s there were some segregationists who took the position that the 14th Amendment had never been actually ratified because it was only, you know, it was only gotten through uh, by dint of coercion, right. through duress. And that was political hardball of a sort that one sees today in all sorts of ways. This is not new in American history. Um, uh, uh, now, um, what's the connection, just to, you might be wondering, to, just to remind you, between the 14th Amendment and the Bill of Rights? The 14th Amendment does, I would say, at least four things that are hugely important, maybe five. Um, so, first and most important for our purposes, it, um, although the courts take a long time to finally do this, actually the courts take a long time to, to redeem anything really in the 14th Amendment, but it makes the Bill of Rights applicable against states and localities. So Miranda versus Arizona, Matt versus Ohio, Gideon versus Wainwright is Florida, um, Lawrence versus Texas, all of the cases, New York Times versus Sullivan is Alabama. None of those conflicts originally was governed by the Bill of Rights, but now, because it's Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. But the 14th Amendment, second sentence says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. What are those privileges and immunities? Free speech, free press, free exercise of religion, um, um, a right to be secure against unreasonable searches and seizures, a right to confrontation and against double jeopardy. All the things in the Bill of Rights, those are privileges and immunities of citizens, and now no state shall invade those. So that's what we call in legal doctrine, incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states. It happens really largely when the 20th century judges finally 
do this under the Warren Court, but that's the 14th Amendment and not the founding. And the second thing that the 14th Amendment says is it puts that race, a little, even though it doesn't use the word race, but the word equal does appear in there, and it's about racial equality of a certain sort. It's not yet the word race, color, previous condition of servitude. That's going to be the 15th Amendment, but it, it puts a certain idea of equality front and center. Related to that, the first sentence says everyone, Donald Trump, I want you to hear this, everyone born in America is a citizen, whether you're born black or white, male or female, Jew or Gentile, in wedlock or out of wedlock, whether your parents were citizens when you were born, or whether your parents weren't citizens when you were born. I was born a citizen, but my parents, because um, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, they weren't citizens. So that's a birth equality idea. Repudiating Dred Scott. Absolutely. That says people born black, even if their grandfathers fought at Bunker's Hill, if you're a freeborn black, you can never be a citizen. If, if you're um, a descendant from the slave race. That's what Dred Scott says in the first sentence of the 14th Amendment. says, not anymore. So birthright citizenship, remember that, Donald Trump? A racial equality, at least in the civil domain. We don't yet have equal voting rights, but at least for other things. The Bill of Rights applying against the states. And one, maybe two um, other important things. An idea of free labor um, that's going to be important. It's going to, there's going to be a labor movement that's going to appeal to the, the values of the 13th and 14th Amendment. But finally, how does that amendment end? How does the 13th Amendment end? Dramatic contrast with the First Amendment. First Amendment, Congress shall make no law. Of a certain sort. It's a Tea Party amendment. It's, it's ba backed by anti-federalist Tea Party types that are very anxious about this federal leviathan. They believe in local governments, the local governments that won the American Revolution, local militias, local juries. We don't like Congress very much. We're concerned that Congress will become out of touch and aloof and live in a big imperial city with big buildings and wide boulevards. This will never happen, of course, but, but that's, that's what you know, the anti-federals were worried about. Okay. Um, Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. Now the 14th Amendment ends, and the 13th Amendment ends, and the 15th Amendment ends. Congress shall have power to enforce this. So um, because we've now fought a war in which the good guys are the central government, and we are more willing in the wake of this war when the states misbehaved. So more congressional power, more federal power, limits on states. No state shall infringe these fundamental rights. Birthright citizenship for all. It could have said race, but it goes even beyond race. Men and women, males and females, are born equal. We're all created equal. We're all born equal. But a reinterpretation of what Jefferson said, reinterpreted through Lincoln and his generation, this birth equality idea, um, and um, 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 equal civil rights. I agree with all that, but I do want to be a spoil sport again. 14th Amendment. First of all, you know, the 14th Amendment's long. I mean, if you look at it, it's got a lot of different portions of it. And there are two things about the 14th Amendment that I want to make note of. First, the 14th Amendment notes the first time in American constitutional history in which a gender line yes. is drawn. A word gets put in. Men. Male, yeah. Section 2 of the 14th Amendment says that states that exclude people from voting will be penalized politically. If you exclude men from voting, you lose electoral representation. 
But women, knock yourself out. Go ahead. They didn't care. They, yeah. put, in, they put in men because yeah. they didn't care about the women. They didn't want to protect the women. Right. Well, the reason behind that was, of course, that the Republicans who won the war wanted to make sure that the former Confederate states did not benefit from the war. Remember, in the original Constitution, slaves were three-fifths for purposes of political representation. The South actually gets stronger after the Civil War because the three-fifths are now five-fifths. And they're not letting blacks vote, but they're now going to come in with more seats in the House of Representatives and more in the Electoral College. Yep. So there's this oh crap sort of moment when the Republicans are thinking, okay, job done, 13th Amendment, we can go home, you know, have a beer. And, and, and then they realize, oh my goodness, they're going to come back with more power than before in the House and the presidency, and they're not letting blacks vote. That's right. And so, initially what they say is, okay, if you don't let the black folks vote, you're going to lose political power, but only the men. Correct. And this caused a big, this caused a huge furor because some of the staunchest abolitionists, some of the staunchest abolitionists had been women. Women feminists. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others. And they went to the their- The Grim K sisters, Lucretia Absolutely. Mott. All of them. And who did they turn to when the 14th Amendment was promulgated? They turned to their old buddy, Frederick Douglass. You know, their comrade in arms. And they said, hey, I know good and well you're not going to go along with this 14th Amendment that's cutting us out. And he took a big gulp and said, I don't like it, but this is the Negro's hour. And it caused a huge split that it was a fracture that lasted throughout the 19th century and into the 20th. And you can see how very male both of yep. these pictures are. Um. So, people ought to remember 14th Amendment, gender line. There's just another thing about the 14th Amendment. You are a spoiled sport. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess. There's another thing about the 14th Amendment. Um, a huge, I mean, there, you know, how many libraries are devoted to scholars, jurists, debating what is this term, the equal protection of the law? You know, states cannot deprive people of the equal protection of the law. It's a very broad thing. That could mean lots of different things. Why, did, why didn't they do one of my, um, you know, why didn't they do what some of the abolitionists had wanted? Some of the abolitionists said, hey, with respect to this 14th Amendment, you should simply say, state, neither the federal government nor state governments can draw any racial distinctions. End of story. Congress, you know, that was put before Congress. Just say, no racial distinctions. Congress said, nah, we don't like that. Nah, 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 we don't like that. Why didn't they like that? Well, if you had a constitutional amendment that said you can't draw racial distinctions, then 
presumably you would outlaw anti-miscegenation statutes. You couldn't tell people, you could, back then, many states, most, said people of different races could not marry. People in Congress, very, they didn't want to touch that. That was, you know, that was the third rail. Um, segregation. You know, sending kids, you know, sending kids to the same school? No, we can't have that. The fact of the matter is that originalism, if you are a real thoroughgoing originalist, then the 14th Amendment, you should say that the 14th Amendment does not prohibit separate but equal. You should say that the 14th Amendment does not prohibit anti-miscegenation. Here's what you can say, if it's really equal, but since it's not equal, you know, it, it, we can't do it. Because it really does say equal. It does say equal. And, and segregation really wasn't ever equal. That's true, although, although, in, you know, in 1953, um, there were southern states that were trying to play catch-up. Right. But we all knew. We they, all knew, of course, it was a lie. Right. So that's, of course, it which was made a lie. our constitution after the Civil War different, let's say, than the apartheid constitution yes. of South Africa. We actually promised equality. We didn't at the founding, but we promised it. We didn't do it. We promised the Bill of Rights is going to apply against the states, and courts aren't doing that. So let, us, let me take the story actually so. to the present moment now. Um, and um, I told you about the great Abraham Lincoln and his generation, um, which gives you. Um, this new birth of freedom, this second Bill of Rights. The world, and I'm going to tell you just very briefly about another one of my heroes, because as great as Justice Scalia um, uh, was in certain respects, he's being given credit for originalism and textualism and constitutional fidelity. And in my view, before there was Hugo Black or Clarence Thomas or Robert Bork or, or Ed Meese, there was the great... Hugo Lafayette Black, um, a former Klansman from Alabama, FDR's first appointee on the court. And he believed in the text of the Constitution. He always carried around a copy of the, of the text with him. I'm reaching in here to show you, because like, what a weird person would like, do that. Um, but he always did. And he believed in text and history. A former Klansman from Alabama who actually redeems Lincoln's vision. He's the driving force of what we call the Warren Court which wasn't making everything up. And here's what the world was in 1936, and then I'll tell you how he sets the table for someone like um, Justice Thurgood Marshall, aided as he was by litigator Thurgood Marshall in, in various cases like Brown v. Board. In 1936, here's actually what America looks like. Even though, despite what the 14th Amendment says, the Bill of Rights isn't generally applied against the states. Freedom of speech and press almost has, has almost never won in the United States Supreme Court. Massive suppression. If you criticize the, um, Woodrow Wilson's uh, war policies off to prison, you go for 10 years. If you're Eugene Victor Debs, you know, a guy who gets a million votes for president, he just criticizes the war, and unanimously the court says, you shouldn't have criticized the war. Um, so Bill of Rights doesn't apply against the states. No really robust protection of free expression. Sectarian, organized, prayer in the public schools, you know, at the expense of Protestants, at the expense of Catholics and Jews and, 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 and non-believers. Um, racial apartheid over much of the country. They say it's equal, but of course that's a, that's a farce. M 
malapportionment in most of, uh, in almost every state, massive malapportionment in, in four of the states, no one person, one vote, and criminal defendants have precious few constitutional rights, especially indigent defendants, nothing like what will become Gideon versus Wainwright. Hugo Black takes aim at all of those things. He does so before William Brennan comes on the court and, and Earl Warren, and will give you a Warren court revolution that I believe actually brings the modern Constitution more into alignment with the 14th Amendment than it had been before. And, and, um, and, and so don't just think that originalism is always this conservative thing, because Hugo Black was a driving force of the Warren Court that helped actually, before Scalia and Thomas and Bork and Meese, he gave you a liberal version of, uh, and uh, very much rooted in Second Reconstruction, because he's from Alabama, and he knows they're not keeping these promises, and knows what happens when you don't keep these promises. I agree with much of that. Um, I want to add a different cast of names, though. I want to, I, 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 you know, so the, the people that you mentioned are very important people. You mentioned Hugo Black, obviously. The great, the great Earl Warren. But I want to mention some other names. Good. I want to mention some other names. I want to mention Medgar Evers. I want to mention Rosa Parks. I want to mention uh, James Lawson. I want to mention the legions of students Snake. who Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Congress of Racial Equality. Why do I mention them? John Lewis. John Lewis, the great John Lewis. Why do I want to mention them? Behind every case, behind every case, there are litigants. Absolutely. Bringing the judges, the, 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 judges the, the judges don't get to act unless somebody else has acted before them. Correct. And, you know, we, know, in law, we, we often forget that. You know, we have our books. We sort of start off with what the judges do. Judges couldn't say anything if there weren't litigants, if there weren't organizations, if there weren't people that are pushing, pushing, pushing. And lawyers, too. So and you, want, you, you, too. Want, you want to mention TM again? Well, I mean, there's, you know, the great Robert Carter, the great Robert Carter, the, um, the great Constance Baker Motley. Uh, obviously, the, the great Jack Greenberg. Can't forget Jack Greenberg. And we could go on. Um, but you've told me in past conversations yeah. that there actually is, was a little bit of tension between someone, these two iconic figures like um, MLK and TM. Um, there was. You know, between sort of the, the, mo the movement person of Martin King and the lawyer trying to, to um, uh, channel and manage this um, named Thurgood Marshall. Oh, of course, there was. There was. I mean, you know, uh, Thurgood Marshall had his view, he had been very successful. He was truly a man of the law. His, he had been very successful going into court. In many ways, he was, I mean, there's a biography, of course, that calls him a revolutionary, but in certain ways, he was quite conservative. He believed in going into court, getting the law changed, and then after that, moving in. He didn't really like 
going over, you know, stepping across the established legal lines. He, 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 he was very resistant to that. Uh, and so, yeah, there was tension. But again, my point is that in, in, in this story, I mean, one of the things I like about those two, you know, those, 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 those two portraits, in neither one do you have judges. In fact, in either one do you probably have lawyers. You have regular folk who are struggling and who are doing things on the ground. And those regular folk also have dramatically influenced our constitutional law. Excellent. And we're going to ask about the Constitution of the future and what we think we have but don't have, what we deserve. But just on that point, just I'm taking us back because then we'll move to the future. Because maybe I skipped over something. Where did you get the Bill of Rights from? You didn't get it from judges. Judges did not announce the Bill of Rights from on high. And when you look at the Constitution, Article 3 is third out of three. Um, and that's because judges were not vanguards of the American Revolution. In 10 of the 13 colonies, the chief judge of the colony sided with George III against George Washington. Judges tend to be well-fed folk um, who um, um, are establishment folk. So the American Revolution is, you know, bottom-up people against duly constituted authority. And then you have these other well-fed Prince, he's a Princeton man, these Princetonians who meet at Philadelphia and they come up with the Constitution and they're real geniuses. They're such geniuses that they forget to even have a Bill of Rights. You know, um, didn't come from Philadelphia. And the first thing that happens when the Constitution goes public is ordinary people, because it has to be ratified, first thing they say is they look at this thing, and in the first week, in effect, they say, dudes, you forgot the rights. And they insist, as a condition of ratification of the document, that a Bill of Rights be added. So where did the Bill of Rights come from? From that very we the people do ordain and establish process. It's very bottom up, and that's why the First Amendment, and the Second, and the Fourth, and the Ninth, and the Tenth all mention the people, the right of the people to petition and assemble, the right of the people to be, um, uh, um, uh, to be secure in, uh, against unreasonable searches and seizures, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, that's the Second Amendment, um, uh, Ninth and Tenth Amendments reserved and retained rights by the people. The people, the people, the people, the people, the people, because it's coming from the, the very Bill of Rights. Bottom up, organically, we the people, that was actually a mass movement. We want these rights written down. It did not come from judges. It came bottom, and the judges actually didn't fully enforce it until finally Dred Scott, they say, okay, the key right is the right of property and we'll enforce that, um, not these others. And they make it a crime to criticize the federal government, the Sedition Act of 1798, and these well-fed judges say, fine by us, despite the First Amendment. So, so the Bill of Rights came bottom up from the people. We, we, we talked about Rosa Parks and John Lewis. We could, these are the guys that give you the, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, pushing, pushing, pushing from the bottom, and then again in, in the modern era. But you have some thoughts, Randy, about what rights we think we have but don't quite, what rights we should have in the future but don't have now, the, the creative white space kind of all around these portraits. Yeah, you know, um, just in talking with folks or in just reading the newspapers, you often hear people speak in a way in which they think that they have certain rights, but they actually don't. 
So, I mean, just here, here's one. Here's one. Um, let's imagine at my, at my school, Harvard University, let's imagine that the president of Harvard University tells us, you know, let's suppose that there's a student who's criticizing the operation of Harvard University, and the president says, get your bags, pack your bags, you're out of here. I can imagine that it would probably be the case that people would say, ah, oh, you can't do that. That's a, that's a violation of, my, of, of the person's rights, you know. Um, freedom of, freedom speech. of speech. That's what they'll say. Violation of constitutional rights. That's immediately what they would say. Wrong. Wrong. Harvard is a private institution. It originally applied only against Congress, and then after the Civil War against states. And Harvard is not Congress, and Harvard is not a state or locality. It's a private institution. We, one of the problems, when we made one of the, at least arguably one of the problems, I'd say one of the problems of our constitutional regime, is we are all too inattentive to the power of private power. So, you know, again, just day in and day out, people don't pay attention to the fact, and it's just a very basic fact of constitutional law, the federal constitution applies against governmental power, except in one instance, I suppose, the 13th, the 13th Amendment. Amendment. The 13th and Amendment. And that's why he, he, we and I are both big 13th Amendment. 13th people. Amendment. So you, Doesn't you say know. no state shall, it just says... No every, slavery. No, slavery just can't exist. Right which means that the federal government might even, or the state government, have an obligation to, to end it, even if it's one private person right. enslaving another. That, it's a radical amendment. It's about, as I said, maybe what freedom means. Um, and, and that's... But it's the anomaly. It is. That, that's, it's the anomaly. But that's why you and I find it interesting. Right. Let me give you another example. Another so freedom of the press, just so we're clear, you know, the press is, is free to the people who own the press. Right. You know, it's, it's, uh, and you have no accident, you can't demand that the New York Times run your op-ed or print your letter to the editor. And indeed, they would say, we have freedom of the press to decide for ourselves. We're going to come pretty quickly to questions, but you wanted to just jump no, in a little that's a, bit. No, that's, that's, that's enough. Okay. So, the Constitution of the future, what should it look like? Um, one thought on that, and then we'll go into questions. Um, we haven't talked as much about state bills of rights. Um, and one important um, uh, uh, idea is almost everything in the federal constitution, many of these things, states did them first. States are laboratories. This is a, a Brandeisian point. States had bills of rights first. States had written constitutions first. Some states got rid of slavery first. States let women vote first. And in some states, you see a more robust articulation of, of rights in the Bill of Rights than you see in, at the federal level. So maybe that might be a source of, of what rights perhaps we should add, our generation, um, our children's generation should add to the document. Okay, so we'll be taking questions from the audience. If you'd like to ask a question, please approach one of the two standing mics in the aisles. Before asking your question, please tell us your name. And out of respect for other people waiting their turn, Please ask one question. So please, no speeches and actually um, one question, not, not a five-parter, because um, it's hard for us old guys to remember five-parters. Um, staff members are on hand if you need any assistance. Please. Thank you again for a wonderful talk, as you always, the two of you always provide. 
My question is about the Second Amendment, and you've probably confused it in my mind even more. Uh, the, the state militia, in order to protect the state, the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. Does that mean the right to bear arms exists only to the state militia? I know, Professor Amar, you've said after the, after the uh, Civil War Reconstruction, blacks needed weapons to protect themselves. Yep. Or is it an Antonin Scalia interpretation where you cleave off the first part and every man, woman, Excellent. and child in the United States is entitled to a bazooka? So let's talk about Justice Scalia and one of his most famous judicial contributions. Uh, he writes the majority opinion in a 2003 case called Heller, which is all about the Second Amendment, and really for the first time uh, in history, reads the Second Amendment to create an individual, to recognize an individual right to have a handgun in one's home for self-protection. Um, and he had many important opinions, but, but often he was in dissent. Now he's writing in the majority and on the Bill of Rights, and so we should talk about that. So here's one thing, just important to, to um, uh, remember. The war in court... Was in, uh, liked all sorts of rights, but it didn't talk about the Second Amendment right so much. I think it's progress when the conservatives say, actually, we believe in the rights revolution. Here's another one um, that you left out. And we'll actually apply it against the states as well. That's a companion case called City of Chicago versus McDonald. But the questioner says, it, Professor, isn't that a problem? Here are the words of the Second Amendment. Quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, that would be these guys, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Is this all about militias? Scalia basically says, oh, textually, grammatically, um, uh, all that early stuff that's just preambulatory, the operative command doesn't say anything about militias, so, and people means individuals. So he hives off all that discussion of militia and says an individual, uh, the people have a right to keep and bear arms. And bear arms doesn't mean military. It's even, or only military. It's a right to have, to keep, and to keep in your home um, a, a, a gun for self-protection. Um, and so he basically says, pay no attention to that militia stuff. It's about, um, uh, and it's about the people and not just the militia and a right to keep and people means per every person, and that means, and keep means in your home. I say, you might have gotten the right result, but wouldn't it have been more straightforward to talk about these individuals having guns in their home for self-protection? And by the way, women might need guns in their homes for self-protection too, not just, not just men. So I think we may have gotten to the right result, but Justice Scalia didn't want to talk so much about Reconstruction. I think that was a missed opportunity. Um, and so today's Supreme Court doesn't talk so much about the militia. And here's why. The militia were heroes of the American Revolution. They were not the heroes of the Civil War. They took up arms against a duly elected government. So there are reasons after the Civil War that we don't really celebrate these local militias, you know, uh, as much. They, they were the heroes of Bunker Hill, but... You know, the, 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 Mass, the Massachusetts militia is the hero of Bunkers Hill, but the Mississippi militia are the villains at Vicksburg. Um, so that's why Marr would say, like, enough with the militias, because we've amended the Constitution. I'm with Thurgood Marshall. We have to remember, with Lincoln, that the original Constitution, in some very important sense, failed. It was a house divided against itself and all sorts and, and on slavery, and it failed, and we had to rebuild it, and we need to talk about that rebuilding. And Justice Scalia didn't 
talk about that nearly enough. And Thurgood Marshall, on that one, Thurgood Marshall, in my view, was right, and Justice Scalia, not so much. Thank you. Uh, Randy, your thoughts on this? Um, I think that Heller was wrong. I think that, um, you know, first of all, it, it seems to me completely implausible after it's true that in a certain sort of way, it was, a, it was a question of first impression, but there had certainly been a lot of discussion. You mean to tell me that all of a sudden, out of the blue, uh, there's this interpretation that nobody else had seen before? Um, more important for me is actually, though, the, you know, what is the upshot of what we have? What is the upshot of the regime that we currently have? And as far as I'm concerned, it's nuts. Um, and in this respect, as in other respects, we are um, inflicting terrible wounds uh, on ourselves. So I think that Heller is a uh, terrible uh, opinion. Since you were nice enough to sort of mention um, uh, the, uh, my stuff on the Constitution, Randy has an amazing book. He has many amazing books, but one is Race, Crime, and the Law. And since you mentioned Rosa Parks and, and uh, SNCC and John Lewis, um, uh, um, there were, are blacks in the 1960s, the Black Panthers, who sound a lot like Antonin Scalia in saying, you know, we can't trust governments, and so we want to be able to arm ourselves. And, and that is a very interesting current in, in American, um, modern American history, in the civil rights movement. True enough. Yeah, I, I had a question. Both of you had clerked for the Supreme Court. No, 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 only, only the great Randy Kennedy. Oh, okay. So my question is, uh, if the court flips, can, can uh, issues that were decided five to four, like Heller or, or uh, Citizens United, flip? Answer, yes. It's happened. We've seen this happen. I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is that constitutional law is constantly being created. Uh, it's, it, to me, it's like a coral reef. It's growing incrementally, little by little. We obviously need to know the history. We obviously know, need to know the text. But we also need to know precedent. We have a standing constitutional committee of revision. It's known as the Supreme Court of the United States. And it would not surprise me at all, depending on what happens in the next few weeks, months, years, if there weren't a bunch of cases in which if the personnel of the Supreme Court changes, they're going to work back, you know, they're going to, these cases are going to come back and could go in a very different direction. So Absolutely. Ju just the things that we've already talked about. Uh, you mentioned Brown versus Board of Education. Well, that's a different vision than you got in Plessy. You mentioned miscegenation. Um, in the 1950s, the Supreme Court didn't want to touch it, but by the time 1967, um, uh, uh, unanimously, per Chief Justice Warren, miscegenation laws, laws prohibiting miscegenation, are invalidated. In 1936, again, just to remind you, 
There's malapportionment, but not by the end of the war and court revolution. There's Jim Crow, but not by the end of the war and court revolution. Uh, criminal defendants don't have, uh, indigent defendants don't have a right of appointed counsel, but Gideon versus Wainwright is going to change um, that. Um, free speech doctrines are going to be um, reversed um, and, and expanded and, 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 and so on. Those, um, uh, the Bill of Rights is going to come to apply against the states. So courts have changed constitutional doctrine. And that Sometimes process, it's really dramatic. What was the flag burning? The, not the flag, the, 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 the flag salute. Barnett overturns Gobitis yeah, in, in, in between 1940 history. and 1943. Yeah, I mean, three years. Yeah. Aaron Hull. I'd like to uh, think that both of you have made uh, President Obama's medium list, at least, uh, uh, on that. That would be a nice, nice filling in. Um, just wanted to reflect, the, the Bill of Rights is a very... Uh, it's a set of negative rights about what government can't do, and then it's been incorporated against the states. Am I framing it right for my students in saying that the, the positive rights include education from the start of our country, social security from uh, the time of uh, FDR, and is healthcare now becoming the third pillar of positive rights of what government owes to us? Are these sea changes in our constitutional Framework. That's just up your alley, Randy. We, of, we, we talked about this in the back room. It seems to me that this is, this is perfect for the period to come. Because as things currently stand, as things currently stand, I, and correct, um, a state could, if it was so minded, say, you know, public education, we're not going to have public education. They could, you know, just do away with public education entirely. Um, even our, with, even our, with Plyler? I'm sorry? Even with Plyler? Yeah, I think, I, don't, I think that a state could do away totally with public education. Now, it's true that states that have attempted to come close to that, the court has gotten around it in various means, various ways. But my, my, my point is that one of the weaknesses, as far as I see it, of our constitutional regime is that it is still deeply embedded in a negative framework. It's all about putting limits on governmental power. It's not very much about giving people the support they need to live decent lives. We have time for one last question. Um, just by way of reminder, um, so there's no kind of Gideon versus Wainwright affirmative right as a matter of federal constitutional law, remember that in many state bills Good. of rights, there is an affirmative right of education, including New York. So, so remember the states. Good. Right, so my question is about the, um, the Lake Hugo Black, which is hopefully resting in peace right now. But so um, clearly you disagree with him on a lot of stuff, but I think one of the most notable things about him is that he's a constructionist, which is someone that follows the ideas of the founders and what they meant. So I'm just wondering, what, is, what are you two, what do you think of the merit of constructionism? Is that like something that you think needs to be part of a justice's view of the Constitution? Or do you think that um, so it's something else about um, what that means? The, the merit of what? I'm sorry? So strict construction, Justice Scalia's emphasis on, on text and history and oh. um, I have or, a, originalism. OK, my view. Right, have, I got, have we got your question right? OK. My view is that. A lot of the talk that comes out of the various justices' mouths 
both those with whom, you know, with whom I'm ideologically aligned and those against whom I'm ideologically opposed. A lot of what is hocus-pocus, is mystification, is obfuscation. The justices are, you know, they're, they're political actors um, who operate in a forum that has its own traditions, it has its limits, it has its customs, but by and large, they're political actors and they use their various rhetorics, their various frameworks to get to where they want to go. So, you know, Justice Scalia would talk about being an originalist. Was it just accidental that, you know, one of the things that mattered most to him, his originalism got him to the place where he would have liked to have gone absent the originalism? No, it's not surprising to me. I think all of the various justices use, you know, the various arts at their command to get to, you know, where they want to go. But we should know that. And, you know, we're gearing up now. We're gearing up now for the confirmation struggle. And I think that we're going to have to grow up as citizens. Because in these confirmation struggles, it's to me, uh, I think that in a couple of hundred years, anthropologists are going to look back at us and laugh. Because what do we see? We, we see people, they swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth. They go to a confirmation hearing, and then they, tell, they say things which are absolutely laughable. They are either engaging in perjury or, you know, I mean, you can give up whatever euphemism you want, but there's, they're saying things which we laugh at. We laugh at. So, you want to be a justice of the Supreme Court? Well, will you tell us, you will tell us, won't you, that you view your role as not making law, but as merely, merely, merely carrying out the dictates of the Constitution. Oh, yes, Senator, that's my position. <laughs> we ask the, the justices, we say to the justices, Senator asks the justice, what do you think about something having to do with Roe versus Wade? Oh, I can't say anything about that because Roe, that might come up before me. Oh, well, do you have anything to say about Brown versus Board of Education? Oh, yeah, Brown versus Board of Education, that was rightly decided. We have to grow up, I don't, you know, and understand the Supreme Court for what it is and, you know, sort of, get rid, like I say, of our sort of quasi-religious view of the justices. Two or three sentences, and then Dale's going to bring our proceedings to a close. Um, Randy said earlier on that you can focus on the judges, or you could actually focus on the folks, people, bottom up. So let's just put aside the justices for a second. All of us in this audience 
can, in my view, and we're not going to be on the Supreme Court, but we can learn a lot by studying the history of the first Bill of Rights and the second. Uh, and um, even if it doesn't bind us in any super strict way, it can illuminate and inform us. You all believe that. That's why you come to a place like the New York Historical Society. And, and you can study both a history of sort of admirable change. They, they, it, the framers gave us something better than what was before, and so to the Reconstruction generation, and so to the women's suffrage movement, and so to the people who added amendments in the 1960s. So we can see what they did and how it was better than what went before. We can see how they did it, which was sometimes through hardball and contestation and sacrifice and struggle. And we can also see what they've left undone, um, what's really sort of left for our generation, not just for Supreme Court justices, but more bottom up, what, what's left for, for us to do, the great unfinished business of America. Well, Akil Ridamar and Randy Kennedy, thank you for a great night. Uh, we're looking forward to part two, right? I think the future of the Constitution can be our next program, yes? And uh, please stay for the book signing. Akil Ridamar will be able to stay and sign his books. Thank you all for coming. I'll we'll sign Randy's again. books, too, if you like. <laughs> Thank you.